So we are continuing in our BLESS series, and BLESS, again, as an acronym for Begin With Prayer, Listen, Eat Together, Serve Joyfully, and uh, Share Your Story. And uh, BLESS is basically our foray into um, intentional witness, learning how to be uh, Christ's ambassadors and with our neighbors, people around us, those who don't know Jesus. And we're, we want to be about uh, helping people to get closer to Jesus. And uh, evangelism, as we've talked about, is kind of a, a tricky word these days. And it, it's, it's loaded in many ways. And for some of us, it may give us hives. We scratch when we hear the word evangelism because we have pictures of, you know, people standing on corners and, you know, with big signs that say, you're going to hell or beating people over with uh, a Bible or, or scripture and, and stuff like that. Or uh, of times when we've been on mission trips or in campus ministry experiences or in youth groups where we've been told to go into the, public, into the mall and be public with our faith and share about Jesus openly with someone in the mall, a stranger, a complete stranger. And some of us who are introverts are like, ah! Like that was a traumatic event. And so evangelism means Go out there and be like, yeah, go get them. And so I think many of us in the church have learned to just hide, right? <laughs> or we put evangelism and witness kind of in the corner in the church. Oh, that's for him over there or her over there. She's really good at talking to random people in the plane or, you know, just sharing the faith. And that's for the evangelism outreach team in the church. It's a separate category. But actually being witnesses... Right is what it, is a part a part of what it means to be Christ's disciples. Amen. Amen. Right? When Christ ascends into heaven, he his directions to the disciples are: "You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. We are all called to be witnesses. We are all called to share the gospel. We're all called to share our faith, um, our testimony about what Christ is doing and has done in our lives." with the people around us. And so what BLESS is about is, hey, can we just create a new paradigm or kind of new view of what evangelism means, what, what witness means, what it looks like for us as a community, as a church body, to share the gospel with the people around us. And a big part of that is it's done in community, right? The pressures not just on one person, on you as a solo person, to talk random to a random person about Christ and to have all the answers, all the answers to people's greatest apologetic questions, right? And, and be able to tell the gospel story in a way that's capturing, right? And it sounds intelligent at the same time and as relevant. But the pressure is off the individual because in a lot of ways, it's done as a community. And we talked about how people uh, nowadays, when it used to be believing before belonging, we talk about today belonging before believing. People aren't looking for community. People are looking to belong. In Seattle, a place, in a place where isolation is so rampant, independence is so rampant, and yet being human beings, we long for connection. We long for a place where everybody knows your name, like the cheer song, right? <laughs> everybody knows your name, 
<laughs> Maybe that's dating me. Cheers was an epic TV show back in the day, but we long to belong. And people will join a community, join a church because they feel welcome. Because, or maybe because you gave them food and, you, and we ate and they liked the food, they liked the people, they liked the hanging out. And then in the hanging out, the people of God begin to rub off on that person and we're like, something's different here. I feel loved here. I feel family here. I see God in this place. I see Jesus in this place. And they want to know more about Jesus and they start thinking about believing and so in that way, community is really important to the witness. Christ himself said, my chief, as a church, you are my body, right? You are my body. You are an extension of me out in the world. And so community, that should take a lot of pressure off of how we approach evangelism and witness. It's not just an independent individual thing. Secondly, we've talked about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit moves. Just like the wind is moving, we don't see it, but we know it's there because the leaves and the branches are swaying back and forth. The Holy Spirit is already at work in this neighborhood, right? On the streets, in the houses, in your schools, in your workplaces, in the individual's heart. God is powerful and real-time and alive and working, right? And so there's no pressure on us. We just have to show up and just... Lord, something out or just be in love because God is with us and God is moving. Amen. So that should take the pressure off of us. Right? The power of God in the church needs to capture that. We need to expect God to move. We need to remember that God is moving and is alive and I'm off track. I'm not on my notes because I'm preaching. <laughs> Let's go back to the outline here. You go home now. <laughs> uh, so, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up. I grew up in Texas. Uh, first through sixth grade, I was in Texas. You know, I used to have a, I was an Asian kid with a southern accent. Isn't that weird? Southern, <laughs> southern accent. And, uh, and so I lived in Irving, Texas, and my best friend was named Armin Lejess, right? And, you know, how many people, how many people lock their doors at home, like, yeah. when you leave? What? Or lock their doors even when you're at home? Yes. I lock my doors. And, uh, you know, I think if you were to go around Seattle neighborhoods and just, just test it out. Go and kind of open people's doors. <laughs> it's, they're locked, right? They're locked. Not only are they locked, there's probably, you probably see, you know, those Nest cameras right there. And people are like have to see you on camera, you know, before they'll open their doors. And, and rightly so, you know, they're, you know, during Christmas time, you'll have like the package thieves that like follow the UPS trucks and like steal the packages as they're being delivered. There's all kinds of strangers out there and there's a lot of fear out there. And that's, some of that fear makes it hard for us to be neighbors, really truly neighbors, like it was in the past. In the past, my parents just let me out and play until like 10 o'clock, until it got dark. They didn't, we didn't have cell phones. They didn't expect me to call. They didn't need me to check in. They're just like, get out of the house. I came back. We play outside till 10 p.m. sometimes. It was light until then, right? We just ran around. We rode our skateboards to the mall. I would never let my son ride his skateboard <laughs> to the mall these days. What changed? What changed? 
And my friend Armin Lejes, he was one of those guys that their fam, uh, single mom with three children and their family, and they would just welcome, they just welcomed me as another child in their house. And uh, they're the kind of household that I would just walk in without knocking and open their fridge and eat something. They'd always offer, if they were eating, they'd say, hey, you want something to eat, you're hungry. And I would literally just walk walk in. You know, it'd be 7 a.m. in the morning, I'd walk in their house and be like, that's a little too early date. But it's like, I'd walk in. Uh, but my home was run by my mother. My mother's Korean, immigrant Korean, and you know, she was kind of protective of the space, right? So I'd bring my friends over, and if you've been to Korean households or other Asian immigrant households, like there's always that separate room, the living room, with the plastic over all the furniture that no one ever sits on. It's like, why are we covering this furniture for like years and years? We never use it. Why did we buy it? We never sit on it. But they're putting plastic on the remote controls and the TVs and the and the couches and like, if I sit on the couch, they're like, no, 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 no. You're gonna make it used. I'm like, that's what we bought it for, right? So there's a sense of preservation and keeping things nice. And my mom really loved her space to be quiet and peaceful. I don't think she loved children at all. I mean, she loved us, but they really loved children. And or didn't like like the noise, you know, that little boys would bring. And I'd bring rowdy little boys after we were playing outside in the woods with our like doing army stuff or whatever. And um, we'd bring them home and she'd always, to this day my, on Facebook, my friends, I remember your mom would used to say, you go home now. <laughs> She'd just go, be really blunt to my friends. You go home now, go back home, right? <laughs> and I'd be so embarrassed, like mom, do you realize they just let me in their house, they give me dinner and stuff, and they let me come in their house openly, and she's like, no, they go home, too loud. <laughs> and, uh, and that was a piece of it, and that was always a tension between my mom and my father, right? Because my father was all about hospitality, and like, welcome everyone in, and bring in the stray dogs, and like, <laughs> welcome everyone, adopt every kid, and stuff like that. So that was always a tension. Uh, you go home, and like, come, come, come. And that's still inside me, I'm like, ah. Um, but that's all to say that we bless people with our hospitality. We bless people with our eating, right? And you've heard about Southern hospitality and how we can learn a lot from the South, how people in the South welcome people. Um, James, last week, did a great kind of survey of all of Scripture from Genesis to the Gospels, talking about how much hospitality was a big part a scripture and how much eating is actually the image of eating and eating together as a community and eating as uh, a part of being God's people and a part of being set apart to bless other people. Eating meals together was a big part of that all through scripture and it was great to have them trace that and, and kind of see that. Yeah, eating is a big deal. Eating together is a big deal for God and the people of God. And we bless other people by eating. And one of the things that James challenged us and shared is like, we don't invite people to our houses as much anymore, right? Especially in Seattle, like, push, our, push yourself by inviting people to your house and, and having them over. 
right? The shared meal. I, I was reflecting with our leadership team yesterday in our meeting that uh, when Janice and I first got married, our first year of marriage, I was on staff at the University of Washington. I just become the team leader of InterVarsity Fellowship there, and uh, we were in our first apartment together. Our first, and it was like a 750 square foot apartment, right? And half of half of the square footage was taken up by wedding gifts that we never unpacked, and uh, <laughs> so it was just a small space. And but it was so awesome because when the school year started. We just started inviting students every Friday night to play games. The Asian students introduced Mahjong, and the, that was the time when uh, Texas Hold'em was like blowing up. Everyone was playing Texas Hold'em, Texas Hold'em. So we were playing cards, and we'd just cook, you know, a big pot of, you know, beef soup with rice, or a big pot of spaghetti, or something like that. And we'd have 30 or 40 students right, in uh, that small living room at a time, just <laughs> hanging out. And our neighbors would regularly like, knock on our door, like, can you hold it down? Because it'd be like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Um, but every week, it seemed like new people would come, new people would come, new people would come, and the students were like, we didn't have to teach them, like we usually do, how to invite people, because they were just having a blast and wanting to invite people. And so they just invited new people, new people, and our fellowship expanded that year. It just blew up, and it was diverse, multicultural. It was really awesome. And I think a lot of that became, came about because of hospitality, because of a culture of hospitality, and eating together, and sharing food together, and enjoying one another's company. We bless others in our eating. Uh, this week, uh, we zero in on one particular meal shared in the Gospels. And I'm going to do a little test. Uh, how many feeding, how many feeding the multitudes did Jesus do in the Gospels? Two? Yeah, two. And can you know how many did he feed uh, the first time? 5,000, yeah. And our passage today is how many? 4,000. Yeah, exactly. And did you know the feeding of the 5,000, which is the more, which is the bigger passage, more popular passage, easier to preach passage, um, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, is the only episode or story that's shared by all four Gospels, except for what other story or episode? <laughs> you know, you know? The resurrection. All four Gospels share the story of the resurrection, and the other story that they share is the feeding of the 5,000. Um, but we're honing in on the smaller little brother of the feeding of the 5,000, and that's the feeding of the 4,000. Um, and the feeding of the 4,000 is in, the, in Matthew here. <coughs> And also in the book of the Gospel of Mark. Um, but the feeding of the 5,000 is very preachable, right? Because it has clear themes. The first is it gives a foretaste of the coming feast of the kingdom of heaven, right? Here, Jesus is showing everyone that one day 
we will all feast together and there will be more than enough. Right? Secondly, a theme in the feeding of the 5,000 is the fulfillment of the manna from heaven theme. Right? You had the people in the Exodus roaming and wandering and they were complaining. And they're like, food, food, God, you brought us all out here just to die? Right? And God provides them with manna. And what does he do? The manna, he says, eat this manna, but don't collect it. Don't try to save it. Eat it day by day. And by eating things day by day and not collecting it, you trust in me and my provision and not in your ability to hoard. Right? And so Jesus is actually the fulfillment of that. I am the bread of life, he says in John. I am the manna from heaven to feed you. And so the feeding of the 5,000, he, in breaking the bread and it multiplying, it also points forward to his death and resurrection and him breaking his body for the world, to feed the world. Number three, uh, disciples learn to trust Jesus in the midst of their lack in order to serve a hungry world, right? They don't want to feed the people. They're like, let's go home. We're tired. It's hot out there. And we don't have food. And Jesus is like, you feed them, right? In the feeding of the 5,000. You feed them. And they're like, no. <laughs> it's like after a church potluck and everyone leaves and there's dishes and you're like, no, I should have left early. I'm the only one left and now I have to do all the dishes. The disciples like, I have to feed them. We have to feed them. And Jesus is teaching them what it means to be disciples. In the midst of your inadequacy, like, I don't have enough to love people around me. Right? I don't have the energy. I don't have the resources. Jesus is saying, it's not about you not having enough. I'll provide. Right? You just be there. You just pass it out. Amen? Amen. But we're talking about the feeding of the 4,000. What is the unique about the feeding of the 4K? <laughs> Not the 401K. Uh, and the one thing we have to note is that this, where the feeding of the 5,000 uh, is more among a Jewish crowd, right? The feeding of the 4,000 is among Gentiles. So it's the feeding to Gentiles. And um, Jesus is in Gentile territory. In fact, do you know what passage precedes this feeding in the Matthew? Anyone? 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 It's the Canaanite woman, right? Do you guys remember that passage? Canaanite woman, her daughter, uh, I think she's demon-possessed or needs healing, but she's at home. And Jesus is traveling near Galilee in Gentile territory. And the Canaanite woman yells at him and says, Jesus, heal my daughter. And Jesus is kind of mean, right? Like, why should I heal your daughter? You're a Gentile. Um, I need to be, I'm here for the sheep of Israel, for the house of Israel. And you're like, oh, Jesus is being elitist and kind of racist. And, and the, the woman pushes in. But still, right? I, I believe that if you wanted to, you can heal. And Jesus says it's not good uh, to feed dogs the food from the master's table that the children are eating. And that's when the women, woman says, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus says, I've never seen faith like this, right? 
And Matthew uses Canaanite woman, the term Canaanite, purposefully because in Mark, Syrophoenician is the more regional, kind of present day term for a woman from that area. Canaanite is an ancient term. And it's an ancient term on purpose because it brings up, right, the people, when the people of, people of God move into the land of Canaan, the Canaanites were kind of the offspring of the Jewish, the Hebrew people and the, the re local residents, right, intermingled, and they had those children. So they did worship God, right, but they were not considered purebred, or they were considered Gentile. And so... That, that Canaanite word would have brought that up. And then we see that interaction at the woman at the well, right? The Samaritan woman said, you Jews say you have to go to Jerusalem to worship, right? I say, right, but we've been worshiping God all our lives, right, at Jerusalem, right? And so there's this kind of like ethnic kind of push and pull, like just because we're not Jews, we're not true worshipers. And Jesus says, one day you'll worship in spirit and truth. You remember that? Um, that's, that's what this is about. And so that interaction with the Canaanite woman actually breaks the dam, right? It breaks the dam for the floodgates to just the waters to rush in. And this is what's happening. Then Jesus goes around Galilee and the people began bringing, and these are Gentiles, began bringing all of their friends, all of their relatives who are lame and crippled and need healing, blind. And they're just bringing Jesus, just droves. And we see the numbers are 4,000 men. Not in, not, we're not counting the women and the children. So at least double, and then if you have two to three kids per household, maybe even more, it's like, what, 20,000? You know, at least that going on. And there, it, these are... Gentiles, because of this interaction with the woman, right? It's a foretaste of the ministry to the Gentiles and beyond, and the expanding table of God's mission. God is wanting to push the eating beyond, you know, just Jews, but beyond and beyond, right? And that's the thrust of Acts again, right? From Jerusalem to all of Judea to the ends of the world, and Paul's mission, right? Expand the table expand who gets to eat and what we see in this passage it says what Jesus had compassion on these people exactly the same as Jesus having compassion on the 5,000 his own peeps right? he has compassion on the other peeps right? and feeds them in just the same way in the same miracle of we only have seven, seven loaves and three sardines, right? Three little minnows, three small fish, and Jesus like, bring it. Right? And how many baskets get left over? Seven. Yeah. And in the feeding of the 5,000, how many baskets get left over? I think it was 12, right? Yeah. So maybe like 12 tribes of Israel, and then seven, God's perfect number, right? God's abundance, right, is for everyone. And that mirrors the woman's statement, the Canaanite woman, right? Even the crumbs are good enough, 
right? And a lot of times as people, when we think about resources and scarcity, we're like, I want a bigger piece of the pie. I don't want the crumbs, I want the fatty parts of the steak, right? I want the first serving and I want the second serving too. But the woman had it right. Even a piece from God's table is infinite in its goodness, right? Even the crowns will fill you up and give you new life and restore you and renew you, right? Even touching Jesus' cloak can heal you, right? It's not like I give you more portion and I give you less portion and you're going to be half healed, right? So if you're blind, like one eye is open, right? <laughs> It's not like that. Jesus says, when I give and renew and heal, I give fully. And and it's you who say the crumbs are less. But it's me that says my crumbs are enough for you. That's why he said this woman's faith is amazing. Right? When God blesses, he blesses. He blesses fully. And the disciples are learning from this. Because what they want to say is, you go home now. (laughs) We don't have food here. I need to sleep, you go home now. (laughs) And Jesus is like, I have compassion on them. I don't want them to go home hungry. Jesus loves people. Jesus loves people. And he wants us, as his people, to expand our hearts, expand our tables. Invite more people to the meal. Invite more people to eat. And we say, oh, my house is small. I have a humble place. My house is dirty, right? It's messy. That's why we haven't invited people to my house in a long, long time. It's like, this place is messy. There's like mold growing in the floors. And no, there's not mold growing. It's like, we got to clean it up. But does it matter? No. Right? God takes what you have, has, and he multiplies it. And he makes it enough. We just have to show up and be faithful. That's the message of this. That's the message. And as the people of God, we're, because he's blessed us, we need to turn and bless others in the same way. By sharing a meal, by eating together, going to work, like James said, people are sitting alone in the cafeteria. Go sit next to a stranger, right? Go sit next to a new person at work and eat with them, share a meal, and have a conversation, right? Go to your neighbors, right? Throw a block party, hey, invite your neighbors over to a barbecue at your house, right? Everyone wants it, no one does it. That's the truth. And, it take, and if anyone's going to be different, it's going to be the people of Jesus, right? right? Yes. Jesus yes. wants community to happen. Jesus wants a party to happen. Jesus wants a feeding, a great feeding to happen. Jesus wants the 4,000 to be fed, right? Mm-hmm. And it's this church that should be at the leading edge of that, throwing parties, yes. right? And feeding people. Amen. And so that's what it means to be a witnessing community is to... Uh, feed feed people to share meals together to eat together are you with me church even the crumbs are more than enough 
even seven loaves and three minnows, right? Even a pot of black rice, it's a broccoli. That's enough. <laughs> you might need some meat there. If I'm, if I'm coming over, you need meat. Um, <laughs> just um, where am I? Let's look at other places in the Bible and see this piece of uh, God wanting his people to be hospitable. Right? God wanting the, the people. God doesn't set his people apart so that we're just this ethnic enclave. They were this ethnic enclave. Right? God set his people apart to be different so that they could be a blessing to other people. Amen? Amen. Right? So that's why when James talked about this last week, Hospitality was so important in the ancient Near East and in Scripture, right? So in Genesis 18, we see Abraham uh, visited by three men. Do you remember that story? Three angels visit Abraham, and he insists on, hey, stay here for the night. Let me get some the best bread, the best stuff, and I'll feed you, and I'll host you, right? And they honor him right after that. And, and this, I think this spot in scripture um, is very intentional because Abraham is a model of hot, radical hospitality. Right? When people come and visit, you should invite them in. When people come to visit, you should feed them. You should offer something. right? Because in the next chapter, Genesis 19, Lot does the same exact thing. You go to Genesis 19, it says two angels come and visit Lot, and he's living in where? Sodom. Right? He says two angels come to visit Lot, and he says, stay with me. Let me bring some bread. Let me bring some water. Let me host you, and you will stay with me. Don't leave this place without me being hospitable and taking care of you. And that model of hospitality that's set by Abraham is followed almost in parallel by lots. Then, so they're staying with them, and then the people of Sodom send a mob, right? And they're saying, let us in to get those men so we may rape them and be with them. And Lot protects them. And it says God, God wanted to, they punish Sodom. But a lot of our emphasis on Sodom and Gomorrah is what? Like what, if I were to ask you, what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? A lot of the emphasis is on sexuality, right? They wanted to go and rape uh, the angels. The core of the sin is radical inhospitality, right? Because it's set up by Abraham's hospitality, and it's set up by... Uh, Lot's hospitality, and Sodom was known for being a town that actually they would burn travelers alive who went through their place. They would punish women who would feed travelers. Right? They were like reverse hospitality. And this is what God is seeing, and this is what the angels are seeing, and this is why they came to the house of Lot that day. You have visitors in our house. Let us enforce our dominance over them. Right? Let us take from them. Let us, let us dominate them and humiliate them. Right? And so in that way, that kind of 
the desire to rape them is that desire to dominate and humiliate them. And so, the inf- and in God's eyes, I think the emphasis is you are not sharing. You are not being hospitable. You are exploiting and you're dominating. Does that make sense? It's not so much, oh, they're homosexuals and they want to do homosexual sex to these visitors. It's you are unjust in the ways you live. Not saying that wasn't a piece of it, but the core is the radical inhospitality. Are you with me? So if you read in Ezekiel 16, verses 49 through 50, Ezekiel actually speaks of the sin of Sodom. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. And here's a quote from one commentator. Ancient Jewish texts such as the Babylonian Talmud and the Genesis Rabbah, the inhabitants of Sodom, were infamous for their cruelty and their failure to support the poor and the needy in their midst, as well as their failure to practice charity and justice. Extra-biblical stories included the Sodomites, physical torture of travelers, as well as their burning of young women and had dared to share food with a family that was starving of hunger. So I'm not here to say one way or another, this is my stance on sexuality. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to really enlighten us to what God cares about in Scripture. Like this changes the narrative, right? Do we talk about don't be like Sodom and Gomorrah and refuse immigrants in your country, right? Don't be like Sodom and Gomorrah and refuse to feed the poor and the hungry who are around you. Don't be like Sodom and Gomorrah and hoard your resources and refuse to be hospitable to your neighbors. Amen? Amen. That's what we should be talking about because that's what's in the scripture, right? The other stuff we can have a conversation about other day. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about injustice right? and inhospitality. Let's, let's take a quick look at another part of Scripture, Acts 10. In Acts 10, Peter has a dream, a vision, the disciple Peter. Right? He has this vision, and God, a sheep comes down from heaven, and there's all this food. And the food is... The food that's been in the Jewish law is unclean, right? Pork. All the food that I like to eat. Pork, right? Right? It's like, yeah! Unclean food, I'm all about it. Give me some dark meat up in there. And, uh, And in the dream, the Spirit of God comes down and says, kill and eat. Right? And Peter, Peter's like, I have never eaten this kind of food. It's, it's not in the law. It's against the law. And what does the, the voice say? The voice, God, voice of God says, what I have declared clean is now clean. Right? So kill and eat. Right? And it says in verse 13, 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, 
Three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man, which means he's a Gentile. Right? He's a Gentile that fears God, who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Right? That same hospitality. Just like Abraham, just like God. He invited the men to be his guests. And where hospitality happens, the witness of God goes forth. Right? Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. right? What is the way to get over your prejudice and your bias, even your racism? Go eat with the people you don't want to eat with. Right? If you want to get down and intimate and get to know someone, eat together with them. Right? You know, when I... The other day, I was going to, we were looking for just a place, a local watering hole, you know? And we went in, <laughs> and it was me and other people of color, and we went in, and it was like one of those places where everyone looks up, right? It's like, it was, it was kind of all white people, and I'll admit, I did not want to be there. And so we're like, let's go somewhere else, like, where they have bubble tea or something. <laughs> but, you know what? You know what, you can get, like, what if we stayed, right? What if we stayed and played pool with people and, and overcame some of those initial biases or fears, right? A way to really get to know and overcome your biases and fears is to eat together with people. And that's what Peter does, right? He realizes, oh, it's not about Jew and Gentile. It's not that God doesn't show favoritism. He invites them into the house to eat with them, and he tastes pork for the first time. And he's like, oh my God. <laughs> this was like the advent of pulled pork. Like, pulled pork. <laughs> and he's like, God, it's good. Amen. <laughs> All right, let's move forward to Paul, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, you know when we do our third Sunday communion, and I say on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was eating with the disciples, and he broke his bread, blessed it, saying, this is my body broken for you, eat in remembrance of me. That whole spiel is actually a summary or recitation of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul actually says, when you, do, when you eat together, say this in remembrance of the Last Supper and Jesus. But do you know what the intent of Paul was when he gives that passage. The intent is that he's giving directions. He's chastising the community. Because he's saying, in your church is very diverse. There's rich and there's poor. Right? And some of you rich people after church are right there. Instead of going to your house and eating privately, you're right there like eating really good food. Not sharing it, just eating it in front of people who have need. And so among you are people who are feeding themselves in gluttony and rich food. 
while there are needy people hungry right there in the community. And he's saying, that's messed up. And so in the future, when you eat together as a community, you do this. And so the, the institution of the communion or Lord's Supper or Eucharist is meant to be a unifying thing, an egalitarian uh, move in the community. Does that make sense? It's like, and so he ends uh, the Corinthians by saying, when you, eat, when you eat, eat together. Always eat together. And let me end because this is the Lord's meal and you are the Lord's people, right? And there's no way someone can go hungry while another person is being fed in the same room. So that what it's that justice piece, it's that sharing piece, it's that hospitality piece that the people of God are supposed to remember that when we eat, we eat together. That nobody hungers in our midst and nobody would hunger around us. We should declare and want hunger to end in our world. Amen? Amen. And we have the resources and the ability to share and be a piece of people not being hungry anymore. Let us go and eat together and expand our table. Expand our table. Because that's the heart of God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that uh, for your provision in each of our lives. That when we have had need and when we've hungered, you fed us and you provided for us. And help us not to forget that you are a God of abundance and not of scarcity. And when we're ruled by scarcity and turn into ourselves and tend towards hoarding and not sharing, I pray that you would release us from that and really show us to trust you and help us to take risks risk by inviting others to join with us, to share a meal with them, literally and figuratively, to share what we have, even if it's meager, um, because you have more than enough for everyone, and you will multiply um, the resources. Help us as a church that's small, that doesn't have a lot of resources, to have big impact because we have big love and big faith. And we know that as we take risks to love our neighbors, that you will provide. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.